so music for me was the opportunity and created uh, the uh, a framework that I could really be, act, look, sound exactly how I wanted. Welcome back to In Her Lens. I'm Nadine, and each week I chat with today's women in film about their crafts and experiences. Before we hop into today's episode, I just wanted to thank you all for listening and your positive words and feedback. Um, I'm really thrilled to see that these episodes are reaching many people across the globe, and I hope that you continue to tune in, get to know these women and their work, and joining me on this wild ride. I had to get that off my chest. So without further ado, episode three, let's go. This week, I am joined by the coolest Elena Sharbila, also known as Kid Moxie. Hailing from Athens, Greece, and currently based in Los Angeles, California, Elena is a musician, composer, and actress. Under her musical moniker, she creates what can only be defined as cinematic electropop with haunting synths and beautiful vocals. Elena's music has been featured in multiple TV commercials, TV shows, and indie films. She composed a soundtrack to the new film, Not To Be Unpleasant, But We Need To Have A Serious Talk, in which she also acts. The soundtrack was released on Lakeshore Records, whose digital catalog includes prestigious tracks such as those for Stranger Things and Drive. Her track includes the cover of Alphaville's Big In Japan. She's created for the action video game Cyberpunk 277, and her latest work, No Island Temple Remix, in collaboration with The Architect, is available now. In this episode, Elena and I talk about her roots and finding her way to the US of A. We talk about her finding artistic and personal freedom in her music and how her process works and shifts her project. And how she came to work with D'Angelo Balamenti and David Lynch on the rework of Mysteries of Love. We touch on the importance of living life, feeling life, in order to reflect it. I've said it before, but she really is just the coolest. So here is Elena Sharbila, Kid Moxie, on In Her Lens. Let me make sure, are you hearing me okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. If you're game, we're going to do a little rapid fire question round, kind of to get the mind working and the energy moving. Are you in? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, dawn or dusk? Dawn. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Wine or beer? Wine. Travel to space or to the bottom of the ocean? Space. Favorite subject in school? Uh, <laughs> damn. Definitely. Uh, Oh, it was chemistry, actually. Can't remember anymore why, but I do remember getting pretty excited for chemistry. Must have had a good teacher, too. Probably. Um, a subject that you wish they had taught you in school. Um, relationships. <laughs> Very real. Um, a board game or a card game? Board game. Appetizer or dessert? Uh, appetizer. A city that you would like to visit? Tokyo. A city that you think other people should visit? I have to say Athens. <laughs> yes. Um, a three-hour movie or a 10-hour series? Real duration is like a big uh, game changer for me. Three-hour movies is a like a no-go, and 10-hour TV show is also a no-go. So X to both. X to both. Okay. What's your pet peeve? 
people who talk too much. Beach or mountains? Mountains. A thing that makes your heart melt? Kindness. The last thing that you took a photo of? Um, a little statue in the living room. <laughs> a little Zeus statue with a Batman um, uh, dressed as Batman. Zeus dressed as Batman. Yeah. <laughs> um, your go-to karaoke song? Uh, I, it used to be Heart of Glass. Blondie. That's a great one. Yeah, I haven't done karaoke in a while. <laughs> I mean, obviously as well, neither. Yeah. <laughs> um, phone calendar or physical planner? Phone calendar. Fall or spring? Fall. If you could have one cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? Japanese. Oh, yes. Texting or calling? Uh, texting. Uh, what's your secret superpower? Secret superpower. I think I'm pretty good about reading people's energies. Mm. Uh, the last thing that you listen to? I listen, it's all, well, I woke up listening to uh, Niels Fromm. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, usually the case in the morning. And the last film that you watched? I rewatched Eyes Wide Shut last night. Oh, oh my God. So good. So good. Some movies are just kind of inexhaustible. You just, it's one time is not enough. Okay, cool. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? How did you get started? I grew up in Greece. I was born and raised in Athens. Um, I left right after high school and moved to London to do my bachelor's in film and then my master's in the States, which is where I kind of ended up the shore washed me <laughs> <laughs> to California. And I've kind of been there ever since, despite the current circumstances. But how I got started, um, I got started without even knowing because my parents sort of started me with piano and ballet by the age of three. So I don't remember getting into anything artistic, but apparently I heard the piano play somewhere in our neighborhood and I said, I want that. Wow. Mom started me mm -hmm. um, with this Russian teacher when I was really young. And that's kind of, and then I started doing theater and I actually was on TV as a kid quite a bit in Greece and so I just kind of started super young and I don't remember even how it began yeah it just felt like a natural space for me to be in all those things I just never thought of them as a profession or and I still kind of don't which is kind of why I like them mm -hmm. and so creativity was definitely something that was encouraged at home what did your parents do my parents are well they're still working and my mom she's a judge oh, um cool. yeah and my dad has a construction company so they're both very not artistic in their profession but they're very appreciative and they always have been of any kind of art mm -hmm. what are some formative works that you remember at watching as a kid or listening to either films or music that you kind of distinctly remember from that time I mean, my dad was and still is a massive classical music sort of fiend. So it was always something that was playing at home that I just remembered being around. Um, a lot of jazz and a lot of Beatles. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the childhood soundtrack, I guess. So you went for your bachelor's to London to study film. Yeah. What did that education look like? It looked like a lot of clubbing and a lot of partying. <laughs> And <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that I got out of it academically. But for me, because I was so young, it just was more of a lesson in 
living by myself from 17, uh, you know, and, and just kind of, and I was just at a crazy party phase, to be honest with you. So I was just kind of loving more, the, the life more than the school life, more than the college life, right. which I appreciated later when I was 20 and I moved to the States because it was kind of like more of a choice. I knew I had to do a bachelor's degree. It felt like everybody has to get a degree. Mm -hmm. and it might as well be film is what I thought at the time, but it wasn't really a passionate choice. Mm -hmm. But a little bit more, um, uh, you know, of a choice was to study theater later on. And I really kind of delved, in, delved into that and appreciated and absorbed way more at that age and at that time in my life. Yeah, yeah. So you started as an actress or did music and acting kind of come at the same time? I mean, like I said, I was acting as a kid quite a bit in theater and on television here in Greece. Uh, but I never again saw it as something that I was going to do. But when I was in London, I did, I did take acting classes, but and I was playing in bands, but I wasn't serious about anything. But when mm -hmm. I moved to the States, I felt like, and that's kind of what L.A., gift to you i feel is it and and new york mm -hmm. um, i feel like it makes you feel like your passion can become a profession yeah i didn't feel at all in europe it just felt like the arts were kind of like a recreation thing they weren't being paid enough they weren't being supported enough so there i kind of felt like wow you can if your dream is to be in bands write music act you can actually try to have a go at it for real here and so i did so you're a multi-hyphenate, an actress and a composer and a musician. How do you kind of carry these multiple passions and job titles? How do you navigate those identities? I always used to be asked, what are you? Mm. Uh, what do you prefer? And I always said, I don't have to answer to that. And who created this sort of notion that we have to pick one thing? Mm -hmm. I want to meet that person who said, this is, there's one box that you have to fit in. I want to undo that damage because I feel like it's damaging to people that feel that they want to express themselves in more than one way, but they feel like, oh, it has to be this path. I do kind of distinguish them inside of me because I feel music carries more freedom. Mm -hmm. Whereas acting, I feel, is a job somebody has to give you. Somebody has to give you a chance to act into something. Right. Whereas music, you give yourself a chance mm -hmm. to put your own art out there. You don't need anybody's permission, and I'm kind of all about that. Like I don't. I, I always felt like there were so many auditions you go to in LA or, and then I used to go to a little bit, a few years back when I was doing it way more. Um, and you just feel like you're, you're filtering yourself through all these people and what they think you should look, act like, literally be like, sound like. And that was very limiting as an experience. I just felt like my true self, whatever that is, which I'm still not, you know, exploring, but it wasn't shining through. Right. So music for me was the opportunity and created uh, the uh, a framework that I could really be, act, look, sound exactly how I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I still see it that way. And that's probably why it's absorbed me more because there's more control and there's more freedom of expression. Definitely. Do you think one feeds the other? The certain lessons that you're learning whilst you're doing acting and feed into your music and vice versa? Yeah, I mean, I like to call my music cinematic pop because I'm kind of in between those two worlds of um, the acting, the movies, and then the music. So for me, music creates a scene and it creates a set 
um, in my head that I like to translate into notes and into lyrics. So my love for movies and cinema and all of that is always, has always and is always embedded in the way I uh, approach music and making music. Right. Before we talk about some of your work in music and in film, let's talk a little bit of just about carrying this international identity. You moved from Athens to London to L.A. What did those look like for you? How did you experience those moves as a person and bouncing between these places and between creative projects? How do you kind of maintain that power and, and rest? Well, first of all, I don't always maintain it. <laughs> <laughs> Let, you know, it's just, it would be kind of a fallacy to say that I'm always feeling in control of things and that I always yeah, feel set yeah. in my choices. I don't. Um, but the good thing with time is that you get used to not feeling safe. And that's something that only with experience and sort of trusting the fact that um, you really can't control much, especially in this profession, that if you really let go of the outcome and just do what you love, then you're going to just have the better, a better journey. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, I was very controlling. When I was acting more, I was, I was waiting for the callback. I was waiting for what did they think of me? I cared too much. Mm. And when I left Greece and I was a teenager and I moved to London, I just felt like I needed to expand. I wasn't, again, you, you know, when you're so young, you don't really know exactly what that means. But pers on a personal level and on a professional level, I felt like I needed to leave in order to achieve more of who I wanted to be. I always wanted to be in the States, but my parents thought I was too young to just go so far. Mm -hmm. So London was a safe distance. So for me, it was a stepping stone towards what I really wanted to do and where I really wanted to be. Right. And so I kind of said, okay, if that's what it takes, if I have to kind of stay in Europe for another <laughs> three years. Yeah. And so I did. And when I moved to the States, it just finally felt, you know, I can really... I can really pursue my dreams because people here, as you know, because you live in New York, mm -hmm. uh, people here kind of encourage that instead of, it was just feeling like stunting your growth in a way. And I hate to say that both in Greece and even in England, it was more like, oh, you want to achieve that? Huh? Really? There was mm -hmm. a skepticism and I was thinking, well, why not? Right. Right. Why not? You know? So in the States, there is this, I still think there's the American dream. I still believe in it. I am a romantic. I'm, I know it's an illusion, but I prefer the beauty of the illusion and the harsh reality of somebody killing my dreams. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I feel places like New York and LA, especially LA, has that, the illusion of the dream. And I just thrive in that way more. Yeah, it is definitely something that um, me now having recently moved to Europe for the first time, navigating that kind of, I don't, I, yeah, it's a skepticism. It's the lack of the American dream. It does live in the, in the American people and that belief that you can grow and go beyond. And so I think that that is really interesting that you've experienced that exact same feeling. Um, 
your musical work, you already said it, it's kind of defined as cinematic pop. You have this really cool electro sound, like kind of synth thing and these really beautiful vocals. How would you define your music and how do you look at yourself defining yourself in this space? I mean, there's this massive umbrella of electronic music mm -hmm. that I occupy a tiny, tiny, tiny place underneath that umbrella. And like I said, I, I do call it kind of cinematic pop because for me, it's not really about the message my words carry. It's more about the atmosphere, the music combined with words or not carry. How did you, where do you think um, your love for this kind of music comes from? I loved soundtracks from a very young age. And um, I distinctly remember being really young and sort of being stuck on the trilogy by Kislovsky, the, um, and especially the Three Colors Blue. Mm -hmm. And the music in that, I think I was, it seems like I would have been too young to appreciate at the time, but it really kind of stirred up something in me. It just felt like something that was very ascending. It just felt like something that was otherworldly. And I really respond to that still, the feeling of a parallel world, mm -hmm. um, something that we are part of, but we don't necessarily access. And I feel like music can create a bridge sometimes between what our everyday lives and somewhere we just don't always have access to. I think it's really magical to think of music that way or of life that way or to feel like you strive to create access to other experiences that are not everyday experiences. So I kind of, I hope, and I guess my goal is sometimes to uh, create that kind of merging of universes, if you like. Yeah. In 2014, you released um, Blue Velvet's Mysteries of Love together with David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti. That's right. Tell us a little bit about this project and how it came about. Uh, so I was, I'm this is another massive influence for me since I was really young. Um, I was watching David Lynch films in Athens, I remember. And I was just thinking, what is this? Because it's a whole genre, right? It is. What yeah. is this? Whatever it is, I want a part in this. I want to access this. Yeah. And I just remember thinking and feeling like that from, from a very young age. I was just struck by the alternate cinematic universe. So moving to the States and being in LA, I just thought, why don't I just try it? You know, I don't know how I'm going to access these people. It just felt crazy that I even thought like that, but I did try. You need, you need that kind of crazy thinking sometimes. I think it's the only way. Yeah. You need to be fearless because, um, because if you do think about things too much, you're just not going to do anything about them. So at the time I did, I was very lucky as well. And I did meet people. I became part of the David Lynch foundation, making music with other artists that were some of them really well known and others really not known like myself. Mm -hmm. but there were people like Tom Waits, Maroon 5, like really big names that were kind of like this part of this collective creating music for um, the philanthropic sort of aspects of the David Lynch Foundation and all their causes. So through them and through contacts there, I got to email Angela Badalamenti, not expecting any response. <laughs> I just emailed him a song I had recently written for, the, for this compilation of music for the David Lynch Foundation, and he wrote me back immediately this amazingly complimentary email. Wow. Just uh, I couldn't believe that one of my heroes, 
was even responding to me. And yeah. he even had a crazy suggestion. Well, he said, um, he gave me some really beautiful comments about it. And then he said, you know, I'm thinking about something. And this is totally spontaneous. Give me your number. And I just emailed him, obviously, back my number. And some days went by, and then he called me, and he said, hey, are you going to be in New York soon? I'm redoing this with the Philharmonic Orchestra of Ghent in Belgium, and I have this crazy idea, and it's an instinctive choice, because I don't know you, but do you want to be part of the remake of this? So cool. And obvi obviously, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, and that's kind of how it happened. When something like that happens, and you suddenly are in a space with people like that, how do you present yourself? How do you work on things like confidence and entering a space and, and being comfortable enough to, um, yeah, to own that? Well, I was, it was kind of uh, super exciting and super intimidating. Yeah, I can imagine. But I really like those feelings. They really feed me. You know, I like that kind of challenge. Uh, I think we live for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I remember I was very nervous when I went to meet him on Broadway at a screening room <laughs> that night. And um, yeah. I just, the whole thing was, I had a passcode to enter the building. It was just, everything was just to provoke a lot of anxiety. It was just very sort It's of, thrilling. It's thrilling. And it was thrilling. And I just couldn't believe this person that I admired so much wanted to, to meet me or saw something special enough that he invited me. And, uh, but he made me, he made me feel so comfortable that I just, immediately felt at ease and he wasn't mm -hmm. somebody that was talking about himself he was somebody that was asking me questions about me which i was like really you want to know about me mm. and then we took a drive in his car for a couple of hours and we talked and we listened to the music and he talked to me about his relationship with david lynch and i got to meet david lynch a few times after that especially when the premiere happened with the short film that accompanied the song uh, and yeah. the foundation produced it and it was just the whole thing from the beginning till end was a magical experience and i don't classify it as so much of a professional highlight but of a personal highlight mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about because you talked a little bit about watching david lynch when you were younger what are some of your musical inspirations and how do these feed into your work today the universe of david lynch and angelo badalamenti was massively influential still is will probably forever be and um but there were artists like Bjork that I remember or Tom York um that I really sort of gravitated towards because I felt there was an ethereal yet accessible quality to what they were doing and mm -hmm. so those were definitely some and then as I sort of started making my own music and I have this really big love for synths Vangelis is a massive influence Blade Runner was is one of my favorite soundtracks I always kind of refer to that. And even if I don't think about it, it's inside of me as a, as a guide of some sort. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Evangelis, then um, Trenta Muller is somebody I love both because of his dark electronic sort of sensibilities. Yeah. Joy Division, the whole British new wave scene. And I just, the feeling you get listening to that, um, to that era, that music that came out in that era from England is unparalleled for me. Yeah. Yeah. So all these things, uh, lyrics wise or, uh, emotion wise or orchestration wise, you know, they're, they're kind of always embedded in my taste and guide me whether I know it or not. Yeah.
let's talk about composing for film specifically and creating for visual storytelling. Uh, your most recent score was for a film called Not To Be Unpleasant, But We Need To Have A Serious Talk, in which you also acted. Um, how did you end up working on this project? I had met the director in a film festival in LA. He knew my music and he said, you know, at some point we should talk about my next project. And then we kind of kept in touch for a couple of years and he said, well, this is my next project. Do you want to write the music for it? And we just went for it. And then the acting was a little more of an afterthought. He said, oh, I also have this part. Would you like to play this part? And I just, uh, so it was definitely a an experience where I really, it kind of sealed for me how music is for me such a superior experience <laughs> compared to acting. Yeah. So, and needless to say, it wasn't a massive part or anything, but it's just the actual experience of what you create musically and how that shapes the film, as opposed to how I felt I was shaping the film acting-wise, was, I don't feel there was a comparison. It's really cool to be, to do two very different perspectives on one film and experience it from so many different sides. Yeah. I'm kind of a, a rookie when it comes to film scoring and composing. So we let's just talk a little bit about the basics and kind of begin at the beginning. You get a script or an offer or you get to pitch. Where do you begin? It really depends on the project. Um, but with a if you're talking about the specific film, I got the script first. I got a mood board, which is usually the case with things. And um, you kind of start building a universe in your head about how this will sound like a sonic landscape that these characters and this story sits in. And obviously you discuss that with a director and they tell you what their vision is and hopefully your visions are aligned to a certain degree. Yeah. And hopefully there's a lot of trust. I've been lucky to, for the most part, work with people that trust my taste and kind of mm. let me just sort of explore and, and do my thing. So that was the case with this film. I feel very good about how it looks and feels. It's actually coming out in movie theaters finally in June. So exciting. Yeah, so exciting, <laughs> finally. Um, but yeah, I just, um, it's, it's always different. Like for Cyberpunk, which is another project that I did a few months back, I had pretty much zero reference visually because it was a very secretive sort of project. So it was just mostly playlists on Spotify of what they wanted to sound like. And you just create based on, 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 on references, on music references. The few films that I've worked on tend to be more like script, mood board, and then discussing with the director, how do they feel this should go? For me, there's a, there's a, I've noticed within my work the last few years that I've been working more for film is to have a familiar sort of, setting like a city like New York, Athens, London, we've all associated to certain feelings and sounds. How do you see it differently according to those characters? You know, like how do you see that place with the eyes of the, the characters that inhabited? And how do you create a new dimension for that place that we all know? Yeah, yeah, that's a really cool entrance point to to kind of finding finding the sound of a place. As you've progressed in your career, what are some important milestones that you've found when you're composing a score from beginning to end? I mean, there's not, I, I can't tell you like some specific rules. It's really instinctive and you really just feel it when it clicks. Mm. You really mm -hmm. just know when it clicks. And rarely do I know the reason something clicks. It's a frequency you tune in and you know also when you're not tuned in and it's fuzzy. 
when things yeah. become clear, then the project will guide you. That's kind of how I feel with everything. And I'm very much about first choices. Your first choice, usually, about something, um, something that excites you and resonates with you, go with that. Because that comes from a different place than later on when you're going to start overthinking it. Right. That's kind of the intuition and the gut yeah. feeling. And yeah. does that also come into play when you choose the people that you want to work with? How, how do you navigate choosing a project based on the project versus the people that are behind it? I don't know if I'm as good of a people judge professionally as I am with something <laughs> that is not human. Much more easy. People can mislead you, not in a bad way, uh, but I just mean like we have so much information from people that sometimes you don't really know till a bit later how your relationship will really, your professional relationship will really kind of um, plan out. But I mean, usually the people that approach me already know what I do and like what I do. And what I do is not a very sort of mainstream classical mm -hmm. thing. So I already know I'm going to have a similar taste with them vibe right yeah so right. it's never and that never really has wavered or has gone wrong because we kind of mm -hmm. know that okay we're kind of on the same page you you like this kind of stuff you know that i do nobody is going to hire me to do a sports comedy i don't want to be hired for a sports comedy i'm not going <laughs> to be good at it if what i do you've listened to and it resonates with you you know this is where i live if you like where i live you know we're going to get along what is one skill that you didn't know comes into play when you're composing for a film that you would now advise someone to look into if you had if you're looking back now like i said gut feeling first choices yeah uh, don't overthink it's not i don't think you're you're there to overthink this should be um you responding to to a feeling, you know, you're responding to something and that doesn't take much thought. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to composing, what parts in the practicalities do you thrive in and what parts do you still find difficult? I mean, I feel strong in my composing of a melody and building a mood. I don't feel strong about sound engineering. Uh, I know how I want something to sound sometimes, but I don't have the right way of accessing for example the perfect sound so i do need help with somebody that will help me with certain sounds for example and obviously production i am it's not my strongest tool i can only bring it to a certain level and then somebody that's way better than me uh, needs to mm -hmm. make it shine um one of the big moments of the film that we talked about a little bit before is the cover of alpha phil's um big in japan uh, what was your instinct in choosing this song and how did you approach this cover? I didn't choose the song. The director loved the song and wanted to have it as the end credits mm -hmm. and said, you know, he asked me to do a cover for it. You know, we released it as a single, as a vinyl. It kind of was all of a sudden in the iTunes charts. Like for me, the challenge was this is such a great song. And the challenge was bringing something completely new to the table with it because nobody wants to necessarily hear it redone. They did it in a great way that is a classic 80s sort of anthem um what can i bring to it you know so the, the right. movie that is that i i wrote it for for this movie the not to be unpleasant movie is sort of um a bridge between greek culture and japanese culture because there's japanese characters and greek characters and as mutually exclusive as those two cultures sound and they are <laughs> 
there are certain <laughs> there are certain things that bridge them together and one mm -hmm. of them is the sound that i use it's the santor that to me also reminded me of japanese music but formatting it in a much more sort of modern way and so i felt if i was going to bring sort of an ethnic electronic ethnic element to it and you know rearrange the melody to it make it sound familiar yet different um that was going to be a winning bet yeah it's really it's a really beautiful and uh, there's a really great uh, music video with it as well um i want to pivot and talk a little bit about networking and um also you are now in athens but you're officially based in la and there's a lot of moving around um what are certain things that you find that remain exciting but you would like to be better at when it comes to networking how do you navigate that space because Ugh. that is one of the biggest things in yeah in this industry is who do you know and who knows of you it really is i mean what people that know me would say i'm great at networking because i am good at doing pr but it comes at a cost because i am introverted mm -hmm. um, but i have to and i've had to override that in order for my own good <laughs> No. Yeah. So I, nobody's going to really know that I'm introverted if they see me at a party or um, the way I've kind of went after things, chased things, mm -hmm. you know, opportunities, key people. It's not something you would attribute to an introverted person. So it's a challenge for me to kind of put that aside and have a sort of very uh, conscious, make a conscious decision that I cannot be an introvert and promote myself mm -hmm. at the same time. So what do you choose? So I... I love, you know, alone time. I love being alone. I like very few people and I'm interested <laughs> in very few people. So mm -hmm. to make it, but, but I found a way to make it pleasurable and fun to network and kind of be like, okay, this is, I'm, I'm on now. Now I'm going to be on, especially in LA. You just kind of get taught that lesson really early on that you have to network. You have to promote yourself. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a manager and an agent, which I do, your best manager is always yourself. Yeah, yeah. is just being a woman in the world of music and of composing and women are often encouraged or almost forced to reinvent themselves and present new fresh work at every turn what has your experience been like in this space it's been quite genderless in a way because i don't think of myself as a woman composer <laughs> i just think of myself as a composer a musician and i mm -hmm. never think of my gender in anything and yeah ideally we shouldn't be having this conversation, ideally. But you know what? We should. Mm -hmm. But ideally, I don't want anybody hiring me because now people are making women composers more visible because they should be. But I don't mm -hmm. want that to be the reason somebody approaches me because of my gender. At the same time, I'm glad that there's talk about it and I'm glad that all those issues are, issues are being brought up. For the last year and a half, I feel like I've definitely been given more opportunities and I've definitely gotten more press um because of my gender um and yeah i mean that's that's great yeah it's an interesting uh, space that we're entering where it is now the balance of okay it is about the work 
as much as possible. But unfortunately, and, and in good ways and in bad ways, these conversations are happening. I want to talk a bit about what the future looks like for you. What are things that you would that you're still aspiring to, that you're navigating towards? I mean, the whole year of this, um, you know, the lockdown and everything that's been going on, it made me dream harder, want more, uh, ache for more because it didn't. It actually worked in a in a way in a good way to make my dream stronger. Mm-hmm. So I want to continue with what I'm doing and do it more and keep doing projects that I love. The dream is definitely to be for me to be proud of my work and be able to stay true to my taste. Mm-hmm. And hopefully people are going to resonate with that and appreciate it because, you know, yeah, of course I want masses of people to love my work. I'm not going to lie and say, <laughs> oh, I don't care about it. No, I, I absolutely fucking care about recognition or else I would yeah. be in a bank. Right. I want to communicate something with what I do. And the more people that get it and get something from it, the better. You talked a little bit about before about being introverted. How do you keep um, both your personal cup filled and your creative cup filled? Because this career is ups and downs and sometimes there's a lot of work and sometimes there's no work. And so how do you keep yourself motivated and healthy? I mean, there's definitely periods that you live more and work less. Mm-hmm. If you are intensely living, um, sometimes that kind of fills your cup enough to not... <laughs> which is not a great thing, but not to pursue your dreams that much, as much because you're living. Mm-hmm. You're really living, right. you know? And there's times that um, you're more settled and you're more sort of relaxed into whatever your personal reality is. And that, for me, creates more room to create more, you know? Because intense situations just kind of absorb you in many ways. Yeah. And I like being absorbed. I think... You know, we're not just here to obviously work and create stuff. We're here to live them. I think that that, that is the wonderful part about creating art and, and music. See, to me, I always think that music is kind of the highest level of art because it goes somewhere that we can't really place a finger onto. Uh, but art comes from life. And in order to create something, you have to be in it. And also feel it because the feeling you get from real life experiences that people only people can give you mm-hmm. the intensity of emotion and the access to that connection because i not to jump into another topic but i do feel we do everything for connection mm-hmm. you know everything mm-hmm. is about connecting you know relationships are about connecting sex is about connecting um music is about connect- everything is about connecting mm-hmm. so as soon as you have connection you know, this is where you thrive in, no matter where it is, no matter how you get it. I don't care how you get it, but be connected to something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that really does come back to everything that you were saying before about, about intuition and guts and following that first instinct. That is that connection that's made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. One last question. Um, if you could look at your younger self, let's, I don't know, say make her 12 years old. What is something that you would say to her? Oh boy, I was such a feisty. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I wouldn't tell me to cool it because I feel like I was such a character that I'd like, I perhaps would like a little girl like that. <laughs> would be maybe to focus more on certain things so that, because I was so excitable and I was so, um, I'm an Aries and I was so much about going for things. 
that my excitement would um, was not channeled mm. in a way that. But do twelve-year-olds need to do that? I don't know. No, I mean, my tw- I don't think it's my twelve-year-old self that needed a lesson. It was later on, probably. <laughs> I think in my twenties I needed to be told way more lessons than my my twelve-year-old actually self knew exactly what was up. I think we yeah. lose it later on. I think so too. I think so too. I think if we could yeah. come back into the person that we were then. Exactly. There is that lack of, of, I don't know, like not even, I, I, I always struggle calling it reality because that is also the reality of how you felt and how you existed at that time. But you, as you grow things, the mountains seem to get steeper and it's nice to remind yourself of, okay, what did my 12 year old self feel and bring that into the present? Yeah, because whatever you were passionate at at 12 was so real and so raw, somehow later on, there's barriers and there's fears mm-hmm. built around it. So I would say to my 12-year-old, keep being fearless. Yeah. You know? And I would say a whole other stuff to my 20-something. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, what's next for you? Is there, what can we keep an eye out for? Um, what is, you know, it, that's a difficult question in these times, but is there anything that you're planning ahead? So my new album is going to be coming out in the next couple of months. It's called Better Than Electric. It's again within that sort of realm of retro futuristic drive soundtrack like uh, music. And it's about it's it's it is it's a pretty emotional, but also um, it's a danceable and it's a great record to listen to at night when you're driving. (laughs) And I'm working on a film currently uh, on a score. So, yeah, there's a there's a few things happening fantastic yeah Yeah. (laughs) well everything will be linked in the show notes thank you so so much for coming on thank you nadine it was awesome talking to you i really yeah i really enjoyed thank you for joining me this week i hope you enjoyed this conversation all of her work is linked in the show notes you can check it out and add it to your night drive playlists if you had a good time and you want to see this podcast grow take 10 seconds and leave that five-star review or share the episode on your socials. You can tag me at Nadine Rumor and the podcast at In Her Lens Podcast. I will see you next week. Cheers. Bye. Bye.